This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. How long will you turn your face away? How long this is Surprised by Grief. My name is Daniel Harrell. I'm editor-in-chief at Christianity Today. My wife, Dawn, died of pancreas cancer back in April of 2019 on Easter Sunday. Hi, my name is Clarissa Mall. I am the wife and widow of former CT editor Rob Mall. Rob fell to his death in Mount Rainier National Park in July 2019. This is Surprised by Grief, where we are mining our experience uh, and tapping into the ways that grief has changed our lives. You know, it's almost been two years, Clarissa, for you. It has been two years now for me. How are we different? <laughs> Boy, you know, I look in the mirror and I wonder if I um, am the same person at all. I feel like I'm different all the way down to my core. And I think as I look forward into this life that I now will live, you know, always without him, there's a tension there between embracing the new me and also wanting to hold on to the me I was before. Because as I step forward now, hitting that two-year mark and looking ahead, for me, it's going to be a, a delicate walk, figuring out how do I take parts of who I was before and bring them into this new life in a way that feels honest and integrated and hopeful, but also honors the real woundedness that I'll carry for the rest of my life. You know, you're a couple months ahead of me. Do you notice those changes or is it something that's kind of crept up on you? You know, I've been so intentional about dealing with my grief and journaling and in reading and thinking through it. I, I don't know, I feel in part sometimes that the changes have been, you know, less dramatic. Part of that, of course, having to do with the time I got to spend with Dawn uh, prior to her death that you didn't get to have with Rob. I'm struck, I think, on the one hand with just how absolute this loss is, such that my tendency to want to honor and incorporate Dawn's life into my life is a challenge at times because she's just so gone. So all of this to say is that the change feels kind of amorphous and less definitive than I imagined. Some of this, I think, is because, you know, my, my daughter, because she was 11 when Dawn died, has entered into the, is going through, I should say, you know, the incredible changes that adolescence brings. One real marker, she, she got her braces after Dawn died and has since gotten them off. And like that whole thing happened, exclusive of Dawn's presence. And it sort of is a, an example of what the rest of my life is going to be. And yeah, I feel like I'm kind of talking all over the place here, but I think the point is that the changes, while absolute and sure, are not always as obvious as I thought they would be. 
I love that you're talking all over the place. I think, I think that's honest. It's how it is. You know, when we try to normalize grief and talk about the way this actually works in our lives, we do end up just talking all over the place because it's not linear. It's not, we've come to this place of acceptance, you know, before we were in disbelief and we dealt with anger and now we're at this tranquil place of Zen where (laughs) we just feel like we're able to move forward with hope and 100% joy and optimism. I think so much of the life that we live with grief is wandering around and picking our way. And, um, as, The years have gone on now. Daily life functions well without him. I've learned how to be a single parent, but all of a sudden there will be a glitch in our daily life. And I feel like it brings such deep sadness. And I think he should be here right now. This is the moment where I need him. I have a camper that we traveled across America a bunch of times in, and it recently got mice in it. Uh, And When I realized that there were mice in there, you know, I've driven thousands of miles in that camper now since Rob's death alone with my kids. I know all the maintenance. I know how to do it all. But it was that moment of he should be here. He should be here to deal with the mice. And even though it seems like a little thing, it's moments like that that remind me that this isn't a linear process, that this is something that... I will always feel in various moments his absence and that aloneness that comes with the reality that, like you say, he is very gone. Um, There's an emptiness there that I think persists. Yeah, for me, you know, being at the coast uh, recently, you know, the ocean is often a, a metaphor for grief and, you know, whether it's changing tides or pounding surf or, you know, calm and tempest and you know, uh, sitting and watching the the ocean shift recently, I that was brought to mind that you know grief for me is something that is internal, but in a way it, it's kind of external too. It's it's outside of myself, and every now and then, you know, a wave breaks and I'm pulled into the tide and reminded just how deep the loss is. But then I surface and swim back, and I'm back on shore, and kind of life presses forward, and there's just this rhythm that. I lean into, I guess, and let carry me. And I'm very intentional about letting what happens happen in that space, knowing that the work we do with grief is, you know, so much work done on us. So I, you know, the tie that we've made over and over between grief and love, I think, is continues just to be critical for me because we are deep believers as Christians that it is love that transforms us. And I think grief is a function of love works that same way. There's a transformation that is happening that is the work of love, only it's, you know, the hard work of love in this way. Well, so how do you handle that when you feel that crashing wave of grief? You know, practically speaking, what are some things you do to honor that space, to honor the love and the loss instead of just plow through it? Or do you plow through it? I mean, that's a valid, that's a valid option sometimes too, right? Yeah, no, yeah. I, I stop, I look at pictures, I read letters she wrote to me. I page through her journals. I take walks. I I love to remember and to recall and to make lists in my own journal of the things that we enjoyed most. All that stuff is deeply comforting. And so the the remembrance uh, that I continue to carry is important because it 
doesn't allow dawn to ever fade away as sometimes can be the tendency as new experiences and life mount on. You know, we, we talked about how, you know, those photos and pictures, you know, Rob and Dawn will never age and they'll always be kind of stuck in time. But I can go back to that time, you know, and participate in it as my new self with her. And there's just something, I don't know, that's sweet about that. Oh, I love that. I love to love Rob even now. It brings me great yeah, joy. Yeah. And, you know, William Warden is a psychologist who did quite a bit of work on grief theory. And, you know, there's an attachment theory of grieving where the goal for people who are bereaved is to find healthy attachments with their person in the years that grow out after their loss. And, you know, some of those attachments are easy to make, right? We look at those pictures and we're brought back to that moment where we really were happy. But it also conjures up, I think, hard memories too, right? Um, Part of taking your person into the life you now lead without them is figuring out how you're going to deal with regrets and things that went badly, arguments that you had. And I think that's an important part of being able to move forward is not carrying the baggage of that relationship on with you. And I wonder if there are ways that you have found to face those things that were not so pretty in your relationship as you remembered on. Yeah. You know, my grief counselor uh, told me over and over again when I would you know, confess aspects of relief and ease following Dawn's death. She's like, well, you know, you you were married to a person, not to an idea. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, humans have their sinful sides and challenges and struggle. And of course, to be married is to, you know, experience a, a kind of hardness that's intended to make us into better people. So yeah, there's all kinds of things that were hard that are now easy because they've shifted and there's a kind of guilt that comes with that. But I, I, I go to that place and I, you know, press into myself and, and remind myself that no, 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 this was a, a person whom I, I loved and, and love. And of course, you know, with that came all kinds of stuff that wouldn't have been there had I not been married to her and, and loved her like I did. But let me, let me ask you this question though. you know, you mentioned about sort of healthy engagement with the people that we've lost, but there's also kind of creepy engagement too. I mean, we can get a little caught up in this and like, what's the line for you between kind of healthy and creepy? Well, I think it's different for every person. You know, there used to be, and I think there still is some kind of stigma around the parent, for example, loses a child and they leave the bedroom exactly as the child left it, right? They never move the medals off the wall or the trophies off the shelf. They keep the clothes in the closet and people say, you know, that's really creepy. And I want to normalize that because there is no schedule for how and when to deal with those external things. And I think a lot of people, when you're talking about, you know, the connection that is enduring, that's healthy and unhealthy, you know, a lot of people look at those externals. Um, you know, she still wears his ring. That's kind of, hasn't she moved on? Or, you know, they're keeping the bedroom the same, or he refuses to get rid of his son's car, you know, those sort of things that people see as unhealthy, enduring behaviors. But I think far more, it's about the internal posture toward that person, being able to acknowledge the reality of their death, to be able to acknowledge the reality of that loss, to be able to face the pain of that grief, 
And then to step forward and start making adjustments to your world, acknowledging that they're not there. But I think that is something that as we move forward in our lives without our person, it's something to always just have a little self-check conversation. You know, am I bringing my person into my new life in a way that's healthy or am I clinging to the past in a way that does not allow me to lift my eyes and look forward to hope? And I think that's going to look different for each person. And I think that's where having a community to process your grief is really helpful, right? When you're doing this solo, then it is just you and your best ideas. But when you have a church community who is grief aware, grief informed, when you have a counselor or a supportive family and friends who get how hard this genuinely is, I think then you have other people around you to speak into your life and say, hey, you know what? Why don't you consider trying this new thing and know that he would be cheering you on? Or, um, hey, you know what? Let go. This seems like it's a really tough season for you. Hold on to the car if you need to. So I think that's where community can be a really helpful resource because the lone wolf model of grieving is just it's dreadful. And I think it doesn't promote healthy growth after loss. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think the idea that things are viewed as weird because we haven't, as communities and, and people, you know, spoken honestly about death and what it means to life. And so we relegate practices that if we normalize them and see them as beneficial to our grief, yeah, would, would take away some of that stigma. That's right. Yeah. You know, you and I got to meet in yeah. person for the first time. <laughs> Uh, which is really cool. And I, I couldn't help but notice that speaking of wedding rings, you had moved yours to your right hand, which I did too. Let's talk about that. Yeah. For a minute. Yeah. I know. You know what? I noticed that when we sat down at dinner together. <laughs> and isn't that a weird thing though? You know, I early on in my grief process, I wrote a blog post about walking into a social setting and feeling like people were looking at my hands and, you know, just that was like the signal, right? That was going to be the signal for when I was done with this thing is when I moved my wedding huh. rings to my right hand, or I just took them off altogether. And, um, Right about a little over a year ago, when I was getting ready to sell my house, I did some concrete work on my patio. My brother-in-law came down and he taught me how to patch a concrete patio. And so I did the work myself. And when I was done, I realized I had forgotten to take off my engagement ring. And it had concrete that had dried inside the prongs. And it was all cloudy looking and just, just a mess. And as soon after that, we sold our house and we moved and I was putting together my kitchen table in our new house and realized that with one fell hammer fall, my anniversary band that I had bought myself after Rob died was crushed. I mean, it was like oval shaped. And here I had ruined these two sentimental rings in the course of like two months. And I thought, okay, well, I guess that's the signal. I guess it's time to take this stuff off now. So mm. I was really heartbroken because I wasn't ready. And I felt like life was just pushing me forward at a pace that I wasn't ready for. So I went downtown to a little jeweler and I set my rings out on the counter in front of him. And I said, you know, what, can you fix this for me? And really, you know, what I'm asking is, can you fix my life for me? Because this is like a symbol, <laughs> right? Of, of the thing that I was longing to keep. And 
I really feel like it was a divine kindness that the older gentleman across the counter says, well, when my wife died, and I had this moment where I was like, he gets it. He gets how hard this is. And he talked to me about my rings. They were not repairable. They, we would have to do something different with them. And he said, you know, we could make you a real heirloom with these. And I mean, I get tears in my eyes just thinking of it now that here was this man who was honoring my loss and the pain that came with it, but was ushering me into something new to be able to say, I'm going to make you something new that's going to have all the pieces of this beautiful life that you live together, but it's going to be different and it will be like a memorial to your marriage. So the ring you saw when we met up together is that ring. It's actually not my engagement ring anymore, but it is and it's not. And for me, I don't know that I ever would have taken off that ring. (laughs) I, I don't think that I could have come to a place where I was ready to accept it. And so you know, life forced me forward and I did it. And now I feel really good about it. I feel proud wearing it because it's a symbol of my love and it's a way both for me to look back and to look forward. This episode is brought to you by Tyndale and the new book, Hang On, Let Go. What to do when your dreams are shattered and life is falling apart. If you or someone you know is walking through a first-class crisis, whether a financial crisis, a health crisis, or a relationship crisis, Tyndale has just released a new book by best-selling author Frank Viola. The book is called Hang On, Let Go, What to Do When Your Dreams Are Shattered and Life is Falling Apart. The book is a time-tested field guide for navigating the worst storms of life when you feel like you're going through the ninth circle of hell. Check it out at hangonletgo.com or any online bookstore. Oh, that's such a great story. Yeah, for me, I, you know, the shift kind of happened uh, right toward the end of Dawn's life when she um, was talking to me in her weekend state, just about marriage being until death do we part and, you know, assuring me that I'd kept my promises, but now our, our marriage was over and not in a, you know, she wasn't saying that in any kind of way other than just the, the brute honesty that she was always about. And, and so, you know, she had me remove my ring as kind of a symbol of having kept my promises. And so I, I put it on my right hand in order to just to, as a symbol of her with me. But yeah, I think as those little things are really important to keep me connected. It reminds me of one of the practices I also like to do is to write Dawn letters. Mm. And so, you know, it kind of reminds me on occasion to kind of engage with her in in that way. And yeah, I was encouraged to see you had had it on your right hand. I mean, I was like, all right, you know, we were kind of thinking on the same track there in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, um, I have wondered sometimes what other people think, people who aren't grieving, who haven't, you know, walked through this and had to make those decisions themselves. But I always remind myself that each person has to do it, you know, their own way in their own time. You know, the ways that you find to honor your person, whether writing them letters or um, wearing their clothes or carrying them forward in your life, I I think they're beautiful. And I think they should be celebrated, honestly, that we celebrate when somebody doesn't remember their person anymore. And I think instead, it might be nice if we celebrated all the ways that remembering is beautiful. 
and you know we've used these phrases moving forward and um you know rebuilding and um what feels like your word you know what does growth look like for you right now yeah you know my best friend told me of course everybody moves on before you do and i've appreciated the language of moving forward rather than moving on but i think the biggest shifts for me uh, in this season or kind of the mantras I'm living by are, you know, learning to love this life, this mm-hmm. life I have right now, not one that I wish I had, not one that could be, not one that should have been, but this life right now. And however it is, it is before me. I think that, you know, it's easy as a, a widower to get caught up, whether in regret or broken dreams or lost hopes and, you know, get just caught in that that tailspin of if only but it's just it just doesn't do you any good because the truth is not found in any of that the truth is in the life that is before me and so how do i hold that life in my hands and embrace it and and love it and so this life is a a big important reminder and mantra for me I, and, and the second one is for many people loss you know shuts them down it's just so hard, so heavy, so final that we don't know what to do. You know, our, our future was so invested in this person. And now that we're bereft of them and forced to do without them, it's a hard scramble. And, and, and no doubt there's been plenty of that for me too. But at the same time, I've been surprised to find, and there's likely a lot of reasons for this, but that my grief in a way opened me up. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, as I've mentioned before, that Again, if grief is the fruit of love, then grief calls to love for its healing. But this idea that the response that we have is not to step away from love, but to open ourselves up to love and be loved. Not necessarily in the context of a new relationship, but just in every aspect of life that we can't close ourselves off and isolate as we've talked before, but we really have to open ourselves up. And and I think Part of what I realize is that I can do that because I've experienced this awful loss and what's worse than that. So the risk of love feels less risky now that I've experienced the grief that comes with it. Yeah. I mean, Jesus says like the seed's got to go into the ground and die, right? And Mm -hmm. I think when you have experienced death, it's hard to believe some of those truths again, that resurrection is not just a possibility, but it's a guarantee that Jesus is making all things new. That includes you too. I think that it's easy to find solace in scriptures about you know, God being close to the brokenhearted, but when it comes time to stepping forward in faith, to stepping into what is unknown, that just takes a new level of faith that I think is pretty scary. But as there's more time between you and your loss, I think those steps of faith look different. Maybe trying a new career that you've kind of noodled about in your head, but wonder if you're ready for that kind of risk. Trying a new relationship, uh, moving to a new place. I mean, all of those kinds of things are signals of growth and steps of trust, believing that uh, resurrection is for you too now. I love that place in Ephesians, I think, where Paul, you know, talks to or writes to the Christians and says, you are already seated in the heavenly places in Christ. You know, the resurrection has already happened in some sense. And so there's a power 
that we have that, again, you know, death cannot vanquish. And so to participate in the resurrected life that I enjoy in part, even as Dawn and Rob enjoy it in full, that gives us capacity and in a way is a, a way to honor the faith that is in us by saying, no, you know, death doesn't get the victory here, that we can love and, and serve and care and, and live now and not be restricted and kept away from those things that God still calls us to. Um, yeah, I, I just I just find a openness and a willingness to say yes to things because there's a fear that I think was probably tied to a fear of death that feels like it's just dissipated. And so I, I find myself wanting to say, yes, yes, I'll try that. Sure. Yes. You know, <laughs> and really drink the fullness of, of life as it is right now. Oh, I love that. So what does love look like for you now? I mean, when you think about what you've learned from grief and loss, how do you think differently about love now? I mean, a couple of thoughts pop to mind. I mean, one is kind of a, uh, a readjustment of expectations. You know, I think that, that for so long, um, love and marriage were tied to a, a kind of particular image and idea of how things would work. And that somehow together, me and you know, another person would craft a kind of family and a kind of parenting and a kind of lifestyle and a kind of set of habits and housekeeping that, you know, were, were functions of this, yeah, very functional <laughs> in a way. Um, but I feel, you know, because all of that just went away with Dawn's cancer and death, I just find myself just more open to, and I know this sounds in a way kind of silly, but just kind of open to whatever, you know, that rather than trying to bring a set of expectations and assumptions to uh, situations or relationships, I'm just open to whomever the people are, you know, God puts into my life. I think of new relationships and new friends I've had the, the privilege to enjoy and just my attitude and posture toward those are are just so much more receptive and you know less judgmental than I think. Looking back, I believe they were you know before Dawn died. That's kind of part of what I mean by by her death opening me up. You know, there's a sense of of real grace. You know that emerges has emerged because I'm just so much more fully aware of the the tenuousness of life of you know all flesh being grass how quick we're here and then gone. So there's just not time to be too particular. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, you know, Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people say after they've lost their person, like I can live again, but I'm not sure I'm ever really going to love my life again. You know, Hmm. there's that distinction between really surviving and thriving and, and going full throttle. Like I was going full throttle in love before, whether that's in marriage or relationship or just the way I'm willing to um, seize life's opportunities. But death has kind of tempered that. And I'm going to hold back a little bit, you know, withhold my love a little bit from the world, from other people. It's maybe hesitant, but I find like you, I think death has just broken me open. I feel like I have way more love to give than I ever thought I had capacity 
for before Rob's death. Like you, I thought in terms of my family, my nuclear family, you know, my kids and my husband, and, and those were my first priority. And any extra love I had could go around, you know, to whoever or whatever else was in my life. But I do feel like death has entirely shifted my priorities that life is so precious. There's so much to love that I want to go love as much as I can, as many people as I can. I think in some ways, death has freed me to live extravagantly in ways that maybe I was a bit miserly about before, but that in being honest about our loss, uh, whatever it is, in being frank about the grief that we feel, that we open ourselves up to new possibilities, new relationships, growth in our lives, both internally, but also externally as well. And that's where I think um, the welcome of grief to the church is such a gift, because Each of us has our own unique sorrows, but together, when we're honest about those things, uh, that we can dive deep into relationships, we can give love generously with the enthusiasm for life that we've discovered after we've faced dark times. And together, I think we can encourage each other on into a new life and walk together as as we wait for our eternal hope. And that's what makes, you know, our faith just so powerful in this season. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his son that there is this indelible tie between, you know, death and love. You know, whoever the greatest love is to lay down your life for a friend. I mean, those things are, I mean, even in the marriage vows themselves, you know, this idea of, you know, undying love until death do us part. I mean, the language that is just an inextricable part of love, I think, our tendency to shy away from that for fear of it being either too morose or or too dispiriting when in fact it's ironically life-giving and that we have the narrative for that as something that we should preach and embrace and allow to fill us with the power that this unifying grief allows because we will all experience it. None of us are immune <laughs> to the grief that, that will come. Yeah, to acknowledge that, to be honest with that, to let the grief... Uh, do its work, I think is true hope and ultimately true joy, as odd as that can sound to those who perhaps haven't experienced it yet. That's been my big surprise that, you know, grief can bring uh, an ironic sort of, of joy that I would have never expected. Jesus, when you gonna wake up? When you gonna wake up? On this raging sea. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate it, and leave us a review in iTunes. If you have feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. Surprised by Grief is a production of Christianity Today. It's produced by Mike Cosper. It was written by Daniel Harrell and Clarissa Mall. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Our music is by the Porter's Gate. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. So Jesus, when you're gonna wake up, when you're gonna wake up and calm this raging sea, Jesus, when you gonna wake up?
just one word found the maker and all the ways will be made still just one touch from the healer and all will be made well just one word from the Just one touch from the healer, and all will be made well. So Jesus, when you're gonna wake up? When you're gonna wake up and calm this raging sea? This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?